Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Mormon Racism Revival. This episode is being recorded on January 22, 2020. Just a few days ago, an article appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune, which brought national attention to the fact that in a new church manual titled Come Follow Me, produced by the Church for Home Study of the Gospel, an official manual of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, appears a quotation from past prophet and president of the Church, Joseph Fielding Smith, that many see as racist. Here is the quote from the manual. The dark skin was placed upon the Lamanites so that they could be distinguished from the Nephites and to keep the two people from mixing. The dark skin was the sign of the curse. The curse was the withdrawal of the Spirit of the Lord. Dark skin is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. And then the reference is given for that quote, Joseph Fielding Smith answers the gospel questions, 1960, volume 3, pages 122 through 123. After all the manuals were produced and published but not yet distributed to the members of the church, somebody pointed out the fact that this could be seen as problematic. Now because of this, the church did take action. Unfortunately, the church did not recall the manuals and republish them without the offending language. Instead, the church went ahead and distributed the manuals to members of the church throughout the world with the offending language. The action they took was to change the online version of the manual. The online version of the manual changes this language. In fact, it takes out Joseph Fielding Smith altogether and replaces Joseph Fielding Smith with a quote from current president and prophet Russell M. Nelson. This is the online version of the Come Follow Me manual. In Nephi's day, the curse of the Lamanites was that they were cut off from the Lord's presence because of their iniquity. This meant the Spirit of the Lord was withdrawn from their lives. When Lamanites later embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, the curse of God did no more follow them. The Book of Mormon also states that a mark of dark skin came upon the Lamanites after the Nephites separated from them. The nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. The mark initially distinguished the Lamanites from the Nephites. Later, as both the Nephites and Lamanites each went through periods of wickedness and righteousness, the mark became irrelevant as an indicator of the Lamanites standing before God. Prophets affirm in our day that dark skin is not a sign of divine disfavor or cursing. The church embraces Nephi's teaching that the Lord denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And now the quote from President Nelson. President Russell M. Nelson declared, The Lord has stressed his essential doctrine of equal opportunity for his children. Differences in culture, language, gender, race, and nationality fade into insignificance as the faithful enter the covenant path and come unto our beloved Redeemer. So there's the quote from President Nelson, which concludes the modified version of this paragraph. Once again, this modified version is found only in the digital online version of the Come Follow Me manual, whereas the original version, quoting Joseph Fielding Smith, has gone out in hard copy to members of the church throughout the world. This has created a great deal of controversy, and I wanted to discuss that on the podcast. In order to do so, I asked friends of mine, Bill Reel and also Jonathan Streeter, to come on to the podcast for a panel discussion. And we will get to that discussion here in just a couple of minutes. Before this, I want to go over a little bit of history related to the issue. By this point in time, most listeners to this podcast are aware that the church has officially disavowed the racist teachings 
of past leaders of the church, and specifically the theories related to why it was that people of African descent could not hold the priesthood or go to the temple for over a hundred years in the church's history. These disavowals are of relatively recent origin. The first such disavowal of which I am aware occurred in 2007 in the PBS broadcast titled the Mormons. In that PBS documentary, Elder Holland, among others, was interviewed. But it was during Elder Holland's interview that I first became aware of any official in the LDS Church disavowing prior theories of the church as to why it was that black people could not receive the priesthood. In the interview with Elder Holland, the question was asked, I've talked to many blacks and many whites as well about the lingering folklore about why blacks couldn't have the priesthood. These are faithful Mormons who are delighted about this revelation, i.e. the 1978 revelation lifting the ban. These are faithful Mormons who are delighted about this revelation, and yet who feel something more should be said about the folklore, and even possibly about the mysterious reasons for the ban itself, which was not a revelation. It was a practice. So, if you could, briefly address the concerns Mormons have about this folklore and what should be done. In response to this question, Elder Holland stated, one clear-cut position is that the folklore must never be perpetuated. I have to concede to my earlier colleagues. They, I'm sure, in their own way, were doing the best they knew to give shape to the policy, to give context for it, to give even history to it. All I can say is, however well-intended the explanations were, I think almost all of them were inadequate and or wrong. It probably would have been advantageous to say nothing, to say we just don't know. And, as with many religious matters, whatever was being done was done on the basis of faith at that time, but some explanations were given and had been given for a lot of years. At the very least, there should be no effort to perpetuate those efforts to explain why that doctrine existed. I think to the extent that I know anything about it, as one of the newer and younger ones to come along, we simply do not know why that practice, that policy, that doctrine was in place. The question was then asked to Elder Holland, what is the folklore quite specifically? He responded, well, some of the folklore that you must be referring to are suggestions that there were decisions made in the pre-mortal councils where someone had not been, where someone, <laughs> I'm sorry, where someone had not been as decisive in their loyalty to a gospel plan or the procedures on earth or what was to unfold in mortality. And that therefore, that opportunity and mortality was compromised. I really don't know a lot of the details of those. Oh, good grief. He knows exactly what the details of those are for crying out loud. He just doesn't want to say what they are. He says, I really don't know a lot of the details of those because fortunately, I've been able to live in the period where we're not expressing or teaching them. Oh, give me a break. You're older than I am, Elder Holland. I only joined the church when I was 18. You grew up in the church. You've heard exactly what these theories are, what these stories are, what this folklore is. He goes on, but I think that's the one I grew up hearing the most, was that it was something to do with the pre-mortal councils. But I think that's the part that must never be taught until anybody knows a lot more than I know. We just don't know, in the historical context of the time, why it was practiced. That's my principal concern, is that we don't perpetuate explanations about things we don't know. He concludes with this paragraph, we don't pretend that something wasn't taught or practice wasn't pursued for whatever reason, but I think we can be unequivocal and we can be declarative in our current literature. Oh my gosh, he actually says in our current literature. This is in 2007. But I think we can be unequivocal and we can be declarative in our current literature, in books that we reproduce, in teachings that go forward, whatever, 
that from this time forward, from 1978 forward, we can make sure that nothing of that is declared. Oh my gosh, this is incredibly ironic. I forgot that Elder Holland actually said all this stuff back in 2007 in this PBS interview, which you can access on the internet. So here we are in 2020 in the brand new official church manual that the apostles, including Elder Holland, by the way, who is still an apostle, had to review and approve for distribution among the members of the church that has a racist teaching from the 1950s from past president Joseph Fielding Smith. And yet in 2007, he's saying that such a thing should never happen. And in fact, appears to be giving his word that it will never happen again. Once again, back to Elder Holland from 2007. But I think we can be unequivocal and we can be declarative in our current literature in books that we reproduce, in teachings that go forward, whatever, that from this time forward, from 1978 forward, we can make sure that nothing of that is declared. That may be where we still need to make sure that we're absolutely dutiful, that we put a careful eye of scrutiny on anything from earlier writings and teachings, just to make sure that that's not perpetuated in the present. That's the least, I think, of our current responsibilities on that topic, period, end of quote. Well, it appears that the least of their duties was not fulfilled, at least not by Elder Holland or by any of his other brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. The next official statement from the church disavowing past theories and statements regarding why it was that blacks could not receive the priesthood came in 2013 in the Race and the Priesthood essay which is published on the LDS Church official website. Under the heading, The Church Today in that essay states, quote, Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse. Oh my gosh, this is 2013 on the official church website. The LDS Church publishes this. Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse. And yet, in the current 2020 manual, in the hard copy edition that has been distributed to all members of the church, they do exactly the opposite of what the church said seven years ago in 2013 that they disavowed. Once again, from the new 2020 manual is this quote from Joseph Fielding Smith, quote, the dark skin was the sign of the curse, period, end of quote. Compare this with the church essay, which you can also find on the church website from seven years ago, quote, today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse. Well, it sounds like what they disavowed seven years ago, they're once again avowing today. The quote from the essay goes on, Today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life, that mixed-race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. Well, I think that with the new 2020 manual, we can see what the church disavowed seven years ago. They are today once again avowing. And what the church condemned seven years ago, they are today once again embracing. In concluding this introduction, shortly after the article appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune, Elder Gary Stevenson was the lucky apostle who was tapped to address the local NAACP meeting in Salt Lake City. This was a special meeting in commemoration of the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Elder Gary Stevenson was the keynote speaker at the luncheon with this huge story that had just broke 
hanging over the head of the church. And here's the story from KSL.com regarding his comments at the NAACP meeting. Apparently, he had some prepared comments, but before he started his prepared comments, Elder Stevenson says this, quote, Now, prior to my prepared remarks, I'd like to address the matter with you. Some of you may be aware from a news article published over the weekend. One of our recent church manuals includes a paragraph with some outdated commentary about race. It was mistakenly included in the printed version of the manual, which had been prepared for print nearly two years ago, when it was brought to the attention of church leaders late last year, that would be in 2019, late last year, they directed that it be immediately removed in our annual online manual, which is used by the great majority of our members. We have also directed that any future printed manuals will reflect this change. We're asking our members to disregard the paragraph in the printed manual. Now, I'm not sure where exactly they're asking the members to disregard this. Perhaps they'll bring it up in general conference in a few months. Perhaps it will show up on the front page of the church website, but I haven't seen anything to that effect yet. Rather, it's only being mentioned here in these comments that Elder Stevenson is making to the NAACP. Once again, back to his comments, we're asking our members to disregard the paragraph in the printed manual. Now, I'm deeply saddened and hurt by this error and for any pain that it may have caused our members and for others. I would just like to reiterate our position as a church is clear. We do condemn all racism, past and present, in any form, and we disavow any theory advanced that black or dark skin is a sign of a curse. Well, except for in our new manual. We are brothers and sisters, and I consider you friends. I love and appreciate you. Period. End of quote. Okay, so that's what Gary Stevenson said to the NAACP luncheon back on January 20th, 2020, just a couple of days prior to our recording of this podcast. I think that's all the introduction we need to this subject. And now we'll go to the discussion between me, Radio Free Mormon, Bill Reel, and our special guest, Jonathan Streeter. All right. Well, I appreciate uh, being a part of this conversation, you guys. Um, I think when this news hit, there were a couple of things that came to mind for me. Um, A lot of you know my history where I got quite a bit of heat a few years ago for a satire apology that I uh, put out when the church was meeting with the NAACP. And when I did that apology, I tried to be as comprehensive as possible. I, if you, if you remember, I framed it in terms of repentance. And so if you go back and look at the statement that, that I released, as a model for what we all wished and knew that the church should do on this issue. Um, it goes through the, the, the different issues of a racism and everything, and then it talks about how it's going to remedy the problems. And one of the things that was in there was a statement uh, that anticipated exactly what we're seeing right now. And, and this, I'm going to read a little bit of what that said. Um, this is, again, this is a, a satire piece imagining what it would sound like if the church actually did this. And let's think about how something like this could be avoided. So it, this part of, it, of the apology goes like this. With that in mind, I am announcing the formation of a scriptural review committee on race. The committee is composed of representatives from the Quorum of the Twelve, the Relief Society, the Seventy, key members of BYU and CES faculty in sociology and race relations, and will be presided over by the president of the Genesis Group. The committee will take six months to review the current body of modern revealed and canonized scriptures, identify those faults of men around racism which have been left uncorrected, and will consult with experts in sociology, race relations, and theology from inside and outside of the church and present the recommendations at the October General Conference this fall. 
And those recommendations could be additional footnotes, updated headers, additional explanatory text, or even full removal of offending passages. It then goes on to say that the church as a body will be able to review the recommendations and then it'll be put up for a vote according to common consent as outlined in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then it closes and it says um, that following that, the church will make a complete systematic revision of all manuals, videos, and publications. Now, the reason that I included this in the apology in the statement on the race, because I think those of us that have really had to wrestle and struggle with this issue understand that it's not simply just scattered statements by prophets through the years that were the product of prevalent racism in our society. The racist themes go deep in Mormonism, as deep as the most correct book on earth. And I think that if if Mormonism as a church is going to really wrestle with this issue, it really needs to dig that deep and say, wait a second, what are the problems? We know in the introduction to the Book of Mormon, it says that if there are errors, they are the results of men. So that means that there could be errors in the book. And the church really needs to get that deep. And something that I really love that was said around the time of that apology was that if we're going to make a correction on this, the same pulpits over which these racist things were taught needs to be the pulpits and the same level of force over which the disavowals and the acknowledgement of past error happens. And what we're seeing with things like this misprint in the manual is basically just the result of the church not actually owning up to it. Even in the recent statement by Elder Stevenson, he said that he was saddened that this was printed. He didn't apologize. He didn't, he didn't say, you know what, there are two apostles that are on the review committee that looks over these manuals. And frankly, you know, that it was our failure in allowing this to happen. Um, it's just, you know, the non-apologies and the continued desire to get out of accountability are just going to continue to make this problem perpetuate. And that's my rant on that. You're right. The words apostle and apology should never be used in the same sentence. <laughs> Well, they certainly aren't, but you know, they're not found in scripture, so there's no problem there. (laughs) Right, right. Hey, Bill, do you want to add something now? So a couple of overarching thoughts. Um, I understand what's transpired in the last week, and I think it's unfortunate for the church, the three of us, I was talking to you a little earlier, RFM, and then I was talking to Streeter before we went on. Um, there's this recognition that the timing that because they tend because they choose to act with a lack of vulnerability and a lack of transparency and a lack of honesty, it it bites them in the ass sometimes because then they don't get to control the timing when somebody discovers a contradiction. And here they are meeting with the NAACP and they just three or four days earlier have this thing blow up. And I know they didn't want to deal with this this week, um, but because of the way they behave, they essentially ran into their own problem. And what I sit and think about you two is that as I went through the first half of my life, hiding myself to fit in with people around me, to fit into my tribe and um, to, to conform and be accepted, eventually that... Um, that became too painful and it became too difficult and it was too high of a price to pay. And so as I entered what I call the, what Richard Rohr says, and I, I'd like to borrow it in the second half of life where I am more willing to be honest and open and transparent. 
Um, I've come to crave that. My wife and I have really difficult conversations now where we get hurt, but we're honest with each other and we know where the other person stands. We know what the other person needs and wants. We understand the differences between us. And as I've uh, found friends who want to do that as well, and as I've chosen to live a life on this side of things that, that involves more honesty and transparency and vulnerability, um, I've come to crave it. And as I look back now in my rearview mirror, because Mormonism is way in the background, what I recognize is that this institution that is supposed to contain the best of men, it's supposed to contain prophets, seers, and revelators. It's supposed to contain people who, whose goal is to be Christ-like and to have his attributes. And what I see is a level of immaturity. I see a level of dishonesty and deception. I see a level of intentional obfuscation, intentional lack of vulnerability, intentional uh, lack of transparency. And as I've watched this whole thing unfold, you come to realize, I was telling Jonathan this morning that Mormonism likes having multiple Mormonisms out there. It likes the 80-year-olds believing a certain kind of Mormonism. It likes its 50-year-olds believing a different kind of Mormonism. And it wants its 20-year-olds believing a whole other kind of Mormonism. And it likes that because it doesn't want people to see the truth. It doesn't want people to get hurt. It doesn't want people to walk away. It doesn't mind if it hurts people if they stay. It doesn't want to do a certain kind of hurt that causes people to question and to walk away. So it, it stays away from these attributes that I've come to love. And as I recognize Mormonism does this, it does this for a primary reason. And I come back around now. I, I say all of that to say this, which is that this whole thing, the church has avoided being honest, open, and transparent because this issue alone causes us deeply to question the integrity and the trustability of prophets, seers, and revelators. If prophets, seers, and revelators were sure by the Spirit that they were right about these things, that they uh, perpetuated past teachings of previous leaders before them who were right about these things, and members of the church, people in my uh, in-law family that I know personally still hold on to all of this crap. And uh, those folks, leaders, leaders before them, and the membership around them all believing something that now the church goes like, yeah, we were just wrong. That's false. We're not going to apologize. We're not going to really explain it in depth. We're going to try to stay away from it and obfuscate as much as we can. But it does seem like we got this wrong. It calls into question the trustability of prophets. And what I've found on this half of life, you two, is that trusting my own intuition and my own gut has proved a hundredfold more reliable than these men who claim to talk to God. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so now I'll go with my five minutes. Were you done, Bill? I'm all finished. Okay, first off, let me riff on what um, Jonathan said originally, because in the Salt Lake Tribune article that came out earlier this week, Marvin Perkins who is an African-American member of the church, who along with Darius Gray, another African-American member of the church, and both involved in the Genesis group, which uh, was originally created back in the early 70s, ironically, by Joseph Fielding Smith as a support group of sorts for African-American members of the church. Um, the article says that Marvin Perkins says, 
that the print manual, in other words, the one that's still in print, the hard copy with the Joseph Fielding Smith quote in it, he says that this print manual, quote, plays to the old pioneer stock that wants to still believe these things while they change it online. Now, that goes to what you said, Bill, about having different age groups in the church believing different things. But now he almost reiterates what Jonathan said in his apology, his fake apology from a couple of years ago. If the church were, quote, truly interested, once again, this is Marvin Perkins from the Salt Lake Tribune article, if the church were truly interested in fixing it, it would go through books, magazines, and statements, clean it up everywhere, he said. And then he finishes with this poignant line, I am convinced that the church does not want to clear up this problem, period, end of quote. And I think that is a point that is well taken. If the church really wanted to clear up this problem, it would do exactly that. It would do what he suggested. It would do what Jonathan suggested as well, is go back through and clear all this stuff up. And by the way, I would also suggest that not only do you clear it up and try and send it all down the rabbit hole, because that's one form of clearing it up, but it's also a form of covering it up. It's to be open and upfront about what was said and that we no longer believe that. That was wrong, and we apologize for that kind of racist statement that was made in the past, regardless of the fact that it was made by apostles and prophets of the LDS Church. Can I interrupt you for just a second, RFM, which is, uh, this would be at least understandable if this was coming from a church that was impoverished, uh, that was that was in, in some level of poverty, that was poor, that didn't have the funds, that didn't have the resources. We are talking about an institution that, you know, we, you and I just covered this $100 billion that's sitting uh, in investment accounts, along with all the other places that the church has got money stowed away and the resources that they have, a, a, a complete uh, employment team of volunteers. Uh, for them to take on the task of cleaning out its racism from all of its closets and from sitting in the living room on the coffee table, it wouldn't take much for this institution to do that, and it wouldn't cost much uh, comparatively to what they have. It, it, this, this really would be a simple task for the true Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only and true living church upon the earth which has unlimited funds, really. Yes, that's a very, very good point. It would cost only a fraction of the interest of the $100 billion account in order to make this right. And in fact, the church would be making an important statement to come out and say, this was old teaching. Yes, but it was by Joseph Fielding Smith, but we renounced that teaching. It was incorrect. It's something that's in the past. It's something that we no longer believe. And this is important enough to us that we are going to recall Every single one of the manuals, we're going to throw them in the trash bin or in the burner, and we're going to reissue manuals that have the new information in it without Joseph Fielding Smith. I think that would have been probably the better thing to do. Yeah, but, but imagine, uh, imagine for a moment all of the members having to confront their church, throwing out all the man. I mean, this would be a big deal. This would be talked about in the hallways. This would be discussed among all members, this, this incredible effort to toss these manuals in the trash bin and to revise them and to reprint them and to send new ones out. The whole church would have to come to grips that something here changed. And that's the very thing they don't want. That's, that's, that is the boat they don't want to rock. Right. And this is the whole reason for what it is they've done. I think that 
what they've done, and I'll get to this in a, a concluding point. I actually haven't even gotten my first point yet, and time is ticking. But, You're the um, moderator. Oh, my gosh. So, um, But, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But this really has brought the issue to the forefront in spite of the church's best efforts to hide it, to not talk about it, to only talk about it in general terms, and to move past it without ever addressing it. This is like the Poltergeist movie. At the end of the Poltergeist movie, you remember the line, you moved the headstones, but you left the bodies. Yeah. Do you remember that one? Yes. Great movie. Yeah, this is what the church does. They move the headstones, but they leave the bodies. And unfortunately, just like in the movie, those bodies are not at rest, and they come up, and they do horrible things to really nice people and give them quite a scare if they're members of the church. Okay, so now the main point I want to make, and all three of my points are going to deal with a Joseph Fielding Smith quote that is used in the Mm -hmm. print manual. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that here's the quote. It's a relatively brief quote that they use in the manual. The dark skin was placed upon the Lamanites so that they could be distinguished from the Nephites and to keep the two peoples from mixing. The dark sign, excuse me, the dark skin was the sign of the curse. This is the quote from Joseph Fielding Smith that was in the manual. It's still in the manual, in the print copy. And then it concludes, the curse was the withdrawal of the spirit of the Lord. Dark skin is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. And then they give the reference to this, Joseph Fielding Smith answers the gospel questions, etc. the year, the volume, and the page number. Now, the problem with this, as I knew immediately, is that there was a lot of stuff that was going to be in this article that they are omitting. They're trying to massage this quote in order to make it ready for 21st century prime time modern Mormon consumption. And even though it says the dark skin was a sign of the curse, which is obviously going to end up being one of the main problems that people had with the use of this quote, it goes on to say dark skin dot, dot, dot. You see, there's ellipses here. There's ellipses in two places in this quote. And that, of course, always gets my antenna up. Dark skin, dot, 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 is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. Well, that sounds like Joseph Fielding Smith is now in line with contemporary Mormonism. There is a phrase that is omitted, and it is signaled, and properly so, by the use of ellipses. The use of the ellipses shows that there is material that's taken out. But here's what it says in the original. The dark skin of those who have come into the church That's the phrase that's left out. The dark skin of those who have come into the church is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. So what they did was they took something that Joseph Fielding Smith said, which made it very, very restrictive. The dark skin is still a sign of the curse, but only it's not a sign of the curse if you have come into the church. Now it's no longer a sign of the curse. So they took that phrase out. And they wanted to make it sound more universal so that Joseph Fielding Smith is now sounding more like uh, President Russell M. Nelson instead of the Joseph Fielding Smith that we all grew up with and know and love, right? <laughs> and they, they took that out and they tried to pass this off as something that would be acceptable to a modern audience. The other thing is that, um, and let me just go through this really, really quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it has the original quote about the dark skin was placed upon the Lamanites so that they could be distinguished from the Nephites and to keep the two peoples from mixing. They included that part, too, about the idea about uh, not mixing in the marriages. No mixed marriages, no interracial marriages is the implication here. The dark sign was the skin of the curse. Excuse me. (laughs) The dark skin was the sign of the curse. 
And this strikes this is also included in the manual. This strikes me as interesting that they thought this was okay. Like we're saying, hey, the dark skin is just a sign of the curse. The dark skin isn't the curse. Therefore, it's not a problem. Right, folks? Uh, I don't think they understood. I'm, I'm not sure they had a lot of people with dark skin who were actually on the correlation committee who's writing this manual or reviewing this manual. But I would, think like- that, I would think that anybody would be able to look at this and say, okay, you're saying that the curse is that the withdrawal of the spirit of the Lord, right? That's the next line. The curse was the withdrawal of the spirit of the Lord. Well, so you're saying the dark skin isn't the sign of the curse. The curse is actually that these people are reprobates. They have no spirit of the Lord. And the dark skin is just showing that the person is actually a horrible person. So why should you take offense at that? That was a rhetorical question. So then it goes on to say, it goes on to say in this part that's omitted from the quote in the manual, but is in the actual article, that the curse was the withdrawal of the spirit of the Lord. That's the first ellipses. And the next part that's not included in the manual is, and the Lamanites becoming a loathsome and filthy people full of idleness and all manner of abominations. Well, I guess we can see why they omitted that part. The Lord commanded the Nephites not to intermarry with them, for if they did, they would partake of the curse. This is also in the original. At the time of the Savior's visit to the Nephites, all of the people became united. Well, that's a good thing. But then it goes on to say, and the curse, and the dark skin, by the way, not just the curse, but the dark skin, which was its sign, were removed. And that's actually from Third Nephi chapter 2, which I looked up, and it says there in verse 15, actually 14 and 15, and it came to pass that those Lamanites who had united with the Nephites were numbered among the Nephites. See, those are the ones who come into the church, right? In verse 15, and their curse was taken from them, and their skin became white like unto the Nephites. So that's what is referring to there is this Book of Mormon teaching. It's throughout the Book of Mormon. Not only is the dark skin given to the Lamanites as a sign of the curse, but when they come into the Nephites and they, they start believing the right things and join the right church, which I guess would be the Nephite church in Third Nephi chapter 2, the curse is removed and therefore their skin becomes white again. And then it goes on with a few other things, which I'm not going to read here, but then there's actually a section of this article. The next section, this is the section title in this original article by Joseph Fielding Smith, Evil Brought Return of Dark Skin. All caps. All caps. That's it. And then he says, after the people again forgot the Lord and dissensions arose, some of them took upon themselves the name Lamanites and the dark skin returned. And then it says, when the Lamanites fully repent and sincerely receive the gospel, The Lord has promised to what? Remove the dark skin. So this dark skin is definitely a sign of a curse. It's a sign of the fact that you are evil, sinful. The spirit of the Lord has withdrawn from you. But as soon as you repent, then the Lord will remove the dark skin. And this is, of course, something that uh, I think all of us, I know I was raised with this idea that indeed Lamanites who joined the church would become lighter in their skin color. And this was taught, and it's actually at the end of this article by Joseph Fielding Smith, and I'll conclude with that. After he says, the dark skin of those who have come into the church is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse, he states, many of these converts are delightsome and have the spirit of the Lord. Perhaps there are some Lamanites today who are losing the dark pigment. Many of the members of the church among the Catawba Indians of the South, many of those members could readily pass as of the white race, also in other parts of the South, period, end of quote. So I think we can see why it is that they chose very carefully the words they were going to use from this article. They were not careful enough 
a controversy arose and they ended up throwing out Joseph Fielding Smith completely from the new version, which is the digital version, and in his place substituting a more palatable and more contemporary and more acceptable statement from President Russell M. Nelson on the subject. Okay, that's that's my point for now. Back right. to Jonathan. Well, uh, you know, I, it didn't really hit me with as much force until just a moment ago I heard you read out loud the Marvin Perkins quote from that newspaper. Mm-hmm. Because you have to understand, they didn't just go to Marvin Perkins and ask him, you know, random black Mormon on the street. Marvin Perkins, I imagine, is having what I would like, what I kind of see as a get out moment. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Get Out. but. I did. Um, it's Jordan Peele movie, and it's it's really uh, shocking and visceral when you watch the movie. But essentially, um, Marvin Perkins has toured the world providing an apologetic on race in the Book of Mormon to church, church members around the world. He's done this through Fair Mormon. And you can Google Marvin Perkins uh, Black LDS on uh on YouTube and on the web and you'll find his stuff because Marvin Perkins has been kind of the originator and the promoter of this idea that the way that you can look at the Book of Mormon and see through what seems on a straightforward reading to be racist themes is to redefine certain words. And he says that these words, because of the process of translation, are idioms. And they're simply just placeholder words for things that mean other things. And so skin is really just your soul. And darkness or blackness is really just the absence of God. And so when it says that the skin was black or dark, what it's really just saying is that their soul was was hurt and, and damaged from not being uh, in the presence of God or not having God's spirit with them. And he goes through, it's like an hour-long presentation to get you to, to look at the Book of Mormon and look at this issue of race through the lens of Mormonism in a way that is not just a blatant repetition of 19th century Mormon tropes. And he's, he's kind of put his neck out on the line in doing that because you really have to bend your mind. You have to bend rationality a little bit in order to look at the Book of Mormon that way. There's two main threads of apologetics, and his was the first one. Um, but in, in the quote that you just read, Marvin Perkins is telling the reporter that he doesn't think that the prophets and apostles of the church actually want to change the racist ideas that saturate the old guard and saturate people that look at the Book of Mormon. I mean, he's basically saying the leaders, the the people closest to God in this church want to hold on to the racism. And that's why we've seen problems like this. And if you've seen Get Out, you've got, you know, in the part where you've got the the young black man who's visiting and, and and it seems like there's a this a modern relationship. He's in a relationship with a white girl, and it seems like what we like to see in this post-racist utopian ideal that we have. And he interacts with people who seem to accept him. And it's only later when he sees the dark underbelly of what's going on. And even though they give lip service to this idea that he's their equal and he's with them, he sees at the root of it in the, in the controversy of the movie what the reality is with that facade and what it means. And I think that the black members of the church, like Marvin Perkins, like Darius Gray, are going to be having to confront and wrestle with this reality that we're being faced by this being in the news again and uh, what the the church leaders say. Um, 
that's that's my first that I guess I have one more point that I want to talk about uh, based off what Bill said, and maybe I can get that out there right now, and then um, yeah, please go ahead that way if I have to leave. The other right. thing is what Bill mentioned in terms of you know the NAACP and the church leaders were meeting this weekend, and the timing is just really bad. There's another really ironic timing that's happening here, and that is that right now. If you look in the news, you can see that the church has started their work on redoing the foundation of the temple, of the buildings, of the structures in Temple Square. And we've been told this is like a multi-billion dollar effort because they have to tear down structures. They have to go down to the foundation of the temple and make it, you know, century earthquake proof. If you go back to the time around the initial NAACP meeting and the, the, the satire apology that was released. And you listen to Zandra Vane's from Sisters in Zion when she's talking both in her criticisms of me for putting the apology out there as well as uh, a very frank and honest criticism of the church. She brings up a metaphor and it's a beautiful metaphor. And she essentially says, you know, if you go back and you look at when they started building the Salt Lake Temple, it was you know, quite a while into the construction where they realized that there was a problem with the foundation. And because the temple itself was so sacred and so important to the members, it didn't matter that they had already built so much. They went and and tore it down and got down to the foundation and they fixed the foundation because that was the most important part. And then they rebuilt from there, making sure that the foundation was sure and that the foundation was sound and right. And so right now we've got pictures of the heavy machinery going and getting down to the foundation of the temple. And the church is spending billions of dollars to do that. And yet we're still seeing the cracks in the theological foundation of the church manifest itself because the church is not willing to do, not willing to spend the dollar. You know, Bill, when you said there would be a big spectacle of the church throwing out these manuals, you're absolutely right. That would be a metaphorical purging of these problems. And, and, you know, what needs to happen is that the leaders need to say with as much force as Bruce R. McConkie said when they first um, lifted the ban. And, you know, you know that there were people in the church that were the old Star Wars that were like, well, you can't change these things. The prophets decreed them from God. You know, the, the church is in apostasy for letting black people have the priesthood and, and go into the temple. And so Bruce R. McConkie had to go out and he had to say, it doesn't matter anything that we said in the past. We spoke without the light and knowledge that we now have. And if you're trying to hold on to those old ideas, you need to stop, correct yourself, and get in line behind the prophet with what he's saying right now. Now, we're going to close our eyes to the fact that they were still preaching anti-miscegenation. And at that time, they were still dealing with the curse. They, they never re- renounced the reasons for the ban. We're kind of in a mirror world from, from you know, the immediate post-1978 world. But, you know, we had one of the high-ranking apostles get out and tell people that were clung to these old ideas they need to let go of them. But the problem is the idea that they were clung to was just the idea that black members could have the priesthood. But where are the church leaders that are willing to be as directive and as corrective as Bruce R. McConkie was back in the day? Now, I, I just don't know that it's going to happen. And the problem is you and I and you know us three, we see that it, it, it can't just be a, an apostle getting up and chastising the members for holding on to old ideas. They have to say, wait a second, we are the ones who gave the fuel to any members that feel that way because we gave, we put the words in their mind to, you know, give divine sanction to those ideas. 
Yeah, and I think that throws into sharp relief what's happened here, because as I recall, this is Bruce Ermacanke, I think it was like 1980, it was a couple of years after the uh, priesthood ban had been lifted, and he said, forget everything that I've said or written, forget everything that any church leader, forget everything that Brigham Young Mm -hmm. ever said, and we're moving forward, we've received new light and knowledge, it's come into the world, we need to get behind the prophet. So you have Bruce Ermacanke in 1980 in a very related circumstance talking about uh, African-American situation with the priesthood and the ban being lifted. But the Book of Mormon talks about dark skin being a sign of the curse, right? And so it's very, very similar, though not identical. So you've got Bruce McConkie in 1980 saying, forget everything we've ever said. And now in 2020, 40 years later, we have the LDS Church not only not forgetting what has been said, but reprinting it as authoritative doctrine in an official church manual that goes out to all members of the church in hard copy. But, you know, we're, we're taking a, a big picture view of what Bruce R. McConkie said, and, and you just have to go back in time and, and look. And he wasn't saying there was no curse, get in line with the idea that there was no curse. He wasn't saying that, you know, it's still okay to intermarry between the races. He was just saying that we got to let black people have the priesthood. Uh, because, you know, the church continued, even though it allowed blacks to have the priesthood, it continued to teach that it was not the best thing for racial intermarriage to happen. It continued to teach that there was a curse and there's a sick logic to it. And, And if you really study this issue, there's a sick logic to why there needs to be this idea that there was a curse that is the result of premortal um, you know, less than nobleness. And that is that, you know, Mormons have this conception that God is a just God and he's not going to punish you for somebody else's sin. And when you look around the world and you see that there are people who are born into a lesser race, because that's how they view that, or born into lesser nations or something, you have to say, well, what did they do to deserve that? Well, you know, God's just, he wouldn't punish people for something that they didn't do. So that means that in the pre-mortal existence, they probably weren't as righteous. And so now they're just getting kind of a, a primary judgment on that. And so it makes a sick theological sense, but it's just another way where false doctrine, false ideas perverts the way that people look at the world around them, the way that they look at themselves. And that idea has just continued to saturate the church and it hasn't had to really confront it until we have the Randy Bott moment. And I think the Randy Bott moment, we've got this really heavily praised uh, BYU professor who doesn't it's almost like with the correction in this manual, he doesn't realize how racist and deplorable his ideas are. And they ask him, you know, why, why did the Mormon church, you know, have this priest? And he just like, frankly tells them the truth. And then the church immediately has to disavow, you know, that was the first point where I think as a church, we let the wide world really understand the theological framework behind its racism past and present. And the church had to immediately distance itself from it. And what we're seeing here, what Marvin Perkins is alluding to here is that those ideas continue to exist. They're just hushed ideas. You know, we have a lot of doctrine that is sort of hush-hush in the church. You know, we've got the second anointing. We've got things that are not a part of church teaching, but they are a part of church belief. And so we don't know if, you know, this, this old guard that continues to hold on to these ideas, are they just simply saying, well, you know, the church, the, the, the secular world is not ready to accept these pure gospel truths. So we just have to, you know, be nice and say the right thing so that we can continue to exist. Right. Going back to Randy Bott for just a second, that was back in 2012 when the Washington Post published an article. Of course, it was in the context of Mitt Romney running for president. 
and interviewing Randy Bott, who, as you say, was a professor at BYU, a very highly ranked, at least as far as popularity with students goes, professor at BYU. And they asked him, and he talked openly about what the church really believes or believed and teaches or taught, at least what he was currently teaching, about the reasons that blacks could not have the priesthood. And the church immediately, the following day on February 29th, it was a leap year, came out with a statement uh, repudiating these teachings, denouncing these teachings, saying that these were disavowed and these were old stuff. We don't believe that anymore. And then uh, Professor Bott suddenly had to resign at the end of that semester uh, after this debacle. But that's 2012. That's eight years ago. And in spite of that, we still have this kind of uh, material, this kind of racist comment from the 1950s being published in a current 2020 church manual. Either the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, either somebody isn't getting the memo, or as Marvin Perkins said, I am convinced that the church does not want to clear up this problem. Can I read to you, uh, since I know you have to go here shortly, Jonathan, I wanted to get your comment on the quote from Patrick Mason in the Salt Lake Tribune article. Uh, It says, Patrick Mason, who is the head of Mormon studies at Utah State University, I think he's the one white person who's quoted in this article, the other two are African Americans, um, also sees inconsistency in how members in church departments handle questions of race. Okay, now this is his quote. It's a big church, and not everybody is on the same page on these issues. The people writing curriculum for the church were socialized at a different time in a different church when conservatives Joseph Fielding Smith and apostle Bruce R. McConkie were authoritative voices. And then he adds this, uh, the inclusion of an old quote from Joseph Fielding Smith, quote, and this is the quote now from Patrick Mason, disappoints but doesn't surprise me, given what we know about entrenched conservatism of curriculum writers within the church. And he says the silver lining is that church leaders did change it and did it quickly. What are your thoughts about that comment from Professor Mason? I think it immediately brings to mind the question that a lot of members should be asking, which is who writes these manuals? Who oversees the production of these manuals? Who approve, Who puts the stamp of approval on these manuals? Because as you pointed out earlier, you know, especially in this Come Follow Me curriculum, which is kind of like the homeschool church curriculum, to use a, a quote from Sisters in Zion, um, you know, this is supposed to be what parents then inculcate their children with what the actual gospel is. Do you guys know, like, who who approves, how do these manuals get written? Is it like a BYU professor or committee put stuff together? And then do, do apostles ever actually look at these things while they're being written? Well, they certainly have to review them and approve them because they represent the official doctrine of the church. It's in the manuals. So, uh, but I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for Patrick Mason, I am concerned by what appears to be from his quote that what he's trying to do is trying to divert blame away from the leadership of the church who are responsible for the content of the manuals and to the writers of the curriculum. In other words, these low-level guys who are entrenched conservatives, they're the ones who are responsible for this. (laughs) It's as if he's trying to say these guys are a rogue organization over here on the side with no oversight and no approval from higher ups in the apostles and from the quorum of the 12 and the first presidency. And they're over here creating these manuals and publishing them and sending them out everywhere. And then all of a sudden after they did that, Oh, well now the apostles read it after it's been published 
uh, and they read it and to their horror, they find that these crazy conservatives in the curriculum writing department have uh, made this horrible error and now they're going to correct it. No, 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 no. This is, this is totally a hand in the cookie jar moment. This is, this is the church thought that they were putting a polish on the, the subject of race that was going to be acceptable to the world. It's like the, the whole thing is they don't realize that the whole notion that at any point in the history of God's dealing with men, that there was a curse having anything to do with skin color, and frankly, that there's a curse at all. Um, is antithetical to the idea that there's God because it, it gives the sense that there are people who are inherently somehow bad or well less well off just by nature of their birth. You know, we can't have you intermarrying because then your progeny will partake of the curse. Well, that's that in itself is such a tribalistic statement that is a reflection of the notion of God's love that, that is more divisive than anything else. And you know, the the conservatives that he's talking about. Are, who are the oldest people on these committees? Well, they're the prophets and apostles. Who are the ones that have the highest level of veto power and are supposed to you know, be authoritative? It's the prophets and apostles. That's where the buck needs to stop. And Patrick Mason has this reputation of, you know, he's the truth cart guy. And he's the one who's put that metaphor out there where as a church, it's okay for us to keep things in the truth cart and discard things that are not truth cart worthy. And the church now has discarded these racist ideas. And what he's doing is he's separating the implications of these things in, in terms of, you know, if people claiming to converse with God and to be the mouthpiece for God have in the past proclaimed with that authority and that weight over those pulpits the truth of God, which includes things that now we have to take out of the truth card because they stink so odiously, well, it calls into question the nature of their identity and role as the mouthpiece of God in the first place. But Patrick Mason doesn't like people to see that. So we do the same thing that the church did in the Race and the Priesthood essay, and that is that we blame racism on everybody else. You know, it's the the members, oh, and maybe a few leaders, but it's the racism that was prevalent of the day. And there's no accountability for what the leaders themselves actually are responsible for. So the same sort of plausible deniability that the brethren enjoy by not actually making the name of the apostles and prophets who review or sit on the uh, curriculum committee so that you never have to point fingers and nobody ever gets a stain on them. Well, you know what they say about criticizing leaders of the church. Oh, it's wrong to criticize leaders of the church even if the criticism is true. Wow, that was good. Was that you, Jonathan? No, I think that was Dallin. He's sitting right next he to joined, me. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> We've got some questions for him. Uh, can I also, before you go, because I know you got to go here in like a few minutes, Jonathan, I wanted to get your, and I'm sorry, I, I'm not trying to ignore you, Bill. Yeah, we got, you know of, we got plenty of time. Yeah, we got plenty okay. of time when he goes. Okay, because uh, in the Salt Lake Tribune article, they also got a comment, a response from the church spokeswoman, Irene Casso, or Casso, C-A-S-O. This is her response. She says, during the publication of the Come Follow Me manual for 2020, there was an error. There was an error that resulted in the printing of material that doesn't reflect the church's current views on the topic. To correct this, a decision was made to modify the content in the digital version of the lesson. And then she also added that the church today, quote, disavows the theories advanced in the past 
that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life, that mixed-race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today, this is the finish of her quote, church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form, period, end of quote. Your response to that, Jonathan Streeter? Uh, it's what the church has to say. You know, when this issue comes out, they have to issue a statement that uh, has the trappings of being all-inclusive and being emphatic. And it's uh, it, there's a phrase called empty rhetoric where people will say things that, that sound good and need to be done, but they're not backed up by real meaningful action that would actually make a significant difference in the future. You know, mm. this is the reason why the, the scriptural review committee idea is so important. It's because, you know, people hold on to ideas because of the strength of where those ideas come from. And if you're in a mindset where you believe that the Book of Mormon is the very word of God, that it was brought to earth by heavenly power through Joseph Smith, then those, the words on the pages of the scripture affect your worldview. And they can say that black skin is not a sign of the curse and everything, but when you're reading the pages and you see these things in the Book of Mormon, it's not like, you know, there was an, a, a world, there was a prophet in the Book of Mormon, and when he was speaking as a man, he said these things about, it's not just, you know, the, the skin color, but then the anti-miscegenation, which is something you go back and you'll see that in the pages of the Ku Klux Klan's literature, which is this idea of mongrelization, where if there's interracial marriage, then it'll go. Well, those, those words don't come just from a prophet in the Book of Mormon. They come from God himself. And so the church would have to really wrestle and go back and say, wait a second, we have God himself spouting things that you would not be surprised to hear from the, you know, the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in the pages of the Book of Mormon. How are we going to wrestle with this? And it needs to be something that actually acknowledges that not only can prophets be wrong, but scripture can contain false and harmful ideas that takes root in the hearts of members and shapes their worldview. And it can't just take an anonymous, you know, some low-level PR person to make a statement you know, they're, they're more than happy to get a quote directly from the prophet when it's some cheesy PR piece about, you know, how he's traveling the world and visiting people and giving the, handing out pictures of himself. Why can't they get a quote from the prophet on these issues and have him be the one who goes out and state, states it so that it's given the degree of seriousness and weight that this issue actually deserves? Yeah, and that they claim to give it. Yeah. Okay, here's one last thing. There was one other person who was quoted in this article at the Salt Lake Tribune. Her name is Jerry Harwell. It's J-E-R-R-I. She is identified as an African-American teacher at the Salt Lake Community College's English Linguistics and Writing Studies Department. And here's what she says. The manual should have been shredded when this egregious error was found prior to international distribution. The money that would have been lost on this is nothing compared to one day's interest on $100 billion in the church's reserves. She says a number of other things. Uh, she's very uh, eloquent and articulate and very powerful in what she says, I think. She asks the rhetorical question, 
when or how often has that essay, talking about the church's essay, Race and the Priesthood from 2013, she says, when or how often has that essay appeared in print in a manual when teaching gospel topics? And I'm not sure it's clear from the article that that's a rhetorical question. And the answer is never. But she concludes saying, it does not matter that a corrected or revised version appears online. The church cannot produce enough videos to undo this. It will essentially reset the clock and allow another generation to perpetuate such racist beliefs. Your comments on that, Jonathan Streeter? Well, it's interesting that she mentions, and and this is where you'd have to look at the time frame, was this error actually identified before the international versions of the manual were distributed in print form? Because when you look at the church, if it is growing, if it is has a significant presence in other countries, non-English speaking, speaking countries, I know that church has made a great deal of noise about its growth in the African continent. You know, it, it's basically, if it knew about this problem and it continued to distribute those manuals to areas that perhaps don't have internet access or are going to rely more on the printed manual than they would on a digital manual, then that's kind of a conscious choice by the church to distribute the ideas contained in this manual and preference them over the digital version. And she's absolutely right. The church should have immediately said, you know what, that is, you know, we've got to shred and get rid of that idea. But again, we go back to Marvin Perkins. I don't think the church actually wants to get rid of this idea. And I have my own personal experience of it in what, you know, every chance that I can get up to Salt Lake City to kind of um, do conferences or be involved in what Sam Young and the Protect LDS Children thing is, I do. And, and last summer, I was able to go up for Sunstone, and, and there's a game that I like to play, which is called Find the False Doctrine in Deseret Books. So I walked into Deseret Books, and I went to the Prophets and Apostles section, where they have books that are, you know, distillations of statements and, and of the Prophets and Apostles. And I went, and I found a book by W. Cleon Skousen called... Um, Prophecy in Modern Times with a foreword by Ezra Taft Benson. So it's, you know, it's there with all the other books from prophets and apostles. And you just open it up just to look for Lamanites and you open it up. And, you know, the the first thing I find is a page that says, you know, where are the Lamanite nations today? You know, it's estimated that there are over 50 millions of Indians or members of mixed blood in South America, when these people are converted, they will no longer be backward, mischievous, and unattractive. They will become white, like their brothers of Ephraim. They will become progressive in their habits, attractive in their demeanor, cultural and intellectual attainment will be theirs. You know, this is in the most revered section short of scripture in the Deseret books, and you can find crap like this. So I took the book, I went to the desk, and I told the employee, listen, look at this page. This is spouting the exact false doctrine that the church is trying to dis- distance itself from. If I'm, a, if I'm somebody trying to share the gospel with a friend and this is the stuff that is in our bookshelves, is a major problem. And they said, oh, oh sir, you're, you're absolutely right. We'll, we'll, we'll go and we'll, we'll let people know when you'll hear. I said, I want to hear back from it. Here's my email address. Let me know when you do something. So then a few days later, I get an email from the retail buying department of Deseret Books. And they say, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We will review it. Now, this was in August, January, July, August of 2019. Here we are in 2020. I just looked at the Deseret Books uh, website and they are still selling Prophecy in Modern Times by W. Cleon Skousen. So, you know, these are just Deseret Book employees, but, you know, 
if the brethren were actually serious and they actually responded to their own bailiwick, their own domain of what is going out under the heading of doctrine that we're teaching to families, if they took it as seriously as they should and made the proper corrections, then that would send the sign down the line that everybody else in Deseret Books, everybody else needs to do the same thing. And the church, this is a missed opportunity at every step of the way. Every time something like this happens, it's a test of the leadership of the church. Are they going to follow it up with actions that show the seriousness of how they're taking it? Or are they simply going to put out a PR phrase do a trite disavowal that's empty rhetoric and then continue business as usual. And I think we're, we've seen business as usual so far. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate those comments, Jonathan. It is now two minutes until the top of the hour. And I understand that you're about to turn into a pumpkin. Is that right? I got to go and take care of some stuff. Thank you guys for a great discussion. And I look forward to hearing the, uh, the final part. Thank you so much for joining us. Love it. Jonathan. Have a great day. Hey, Bill. Yes, sir. I know you've had a lot of thoughts while Jonathan and I have been talking, but uh, you want to share those with us now? Um, Lots of things. So uh, let me try to make sure I cover all of these. Let me start with there are more than one issue here for why the church would want to obfuscate around this. And one of those is genetics. So what I mean by that is that skin pigment is a science. We understand why people's skin color... Uh, over over thousands of years, why evolution takes various people within various cultures and has their skin pigmentation uh, change or be different than uh, somebody else on the other side of the globe. And while some of that science is still a little fuzzy for the reasons behind it, whether it's a, a cold climate or a hot climate, a climate that where the people are directly in the sun or a climate where people are out of the sun, uh, a culture where they're out of the sun, we, we understand the process generally. And it, in 2020, in the modern age, when we have science all around us, we have access to the internet and information, a supernatural being changing an entire people's skin pigmentation with a snap of a finger becomes, to be completely honest, becomes absurd. And so Mormonism has this in their scriptures. And there is this conflict with science. So to come out and say, like, the Book of Mormon was wrong. Nephi stated something that by today's standard would be absurd causes us to question the historicity of the Book of Mormon. So the church doesn't want to go there for that reason. When the 1978 proposed revelation, which I, I would love to debate that in a three-hour episode of whether that was uh, a revelation or not, when the 1978 change came and all worthy males, regardless of color, were allowed to hold the priesthood. And when all men and women, regardless of color, could enter the temple and receive the saving ordinances, the the church, like we pointed out earlier, I think maybe it was Jonathan that said this, Bruce R. McConkie stood up and essentially disavowed everything that was said in the past on this issue. When the race and priesthood gospel topics essay came out, it seemed to be speaking directly to the modern church, 1830 on, and its approach in theology around the modern members, 1830 on, 
ability to hold priesthood and to receive the ordinances of the temple. And this now seems to be another extension. In other words, the church comes in and goes, okay, look, we're not going to address the Book of Mormon. We're not going to address Noah's Ark and Cain and sons of Ham. And we're not going to address any of that. What we're going to address is that from 1830 on, we came up with some theories, which again, let's debate it because those weren't theories at the time. They were prophets, seers, and revelators announcing doctrinal positions. Um, It's only in hindsight that we go, oh yeah, they were misled and they were wrong. And so let's call them disavowed theories. Those, the, the modern church seems to be pointing at the modern problem. Now we have this extension where in the last week, uh, the members of the church are now being told that, oh, we're even going to go further now. We're going to go to the Book of Mormon. And we're going to say that the Nephites and Lamanites, the theological position around their skin color is also not okay, not, not right. Nephi messed up uh, his theology around his brothers and their descendants and Nephi's descendants' theology around Laman and Lemuel's descendants is now also wrong and misled. And the trouble is that this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true and living church upon the earth, is constantly changing its position. It doesn't know what ground to hold. And, And that's because it is trying not to disrupt the membership, And it's trying to appear to as many members as possible as being consistent and unchanging. As one of you pointed out a few minutes ago, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You and I were talking on the phone before we did this. I'd love to get you to explain this to the audience. But they're trying to play this off as if um, this mistake was an unintentional error done by curriculum writers in a moment, when I get done sharing a few other points, I'd like you to go into why you think it's intentional. I 100% agree with you. This wasn't a mistake until um, it became clear that the coverage via media, media at some point was going to backfire against them on this. They wanted this in the manuals. The leadership wanted this in the manuals. The curriculum writers wanted this in the manuals. This is intentional until it wasn't. So first the genetics, then now the walking back even further going into the Book of Mormon. And at some point, I imagine the church will have a statement on Cain and the church will have a statement on the sons of Ham. And all of that will play out in the next decade or two. To go now further, Jonathan was pointing out and you were pointing out this idea about Patrick Mason um, deflecting accountability away from the leadership. We do this at BYU, right? BYU used to do shock therapy with those who were LGBT trying to quote unquote fix them and it didn't work and it backfired. And now the leadership of the church essentially takes this position and the members defend it. Apologists within Fair Mormon and others defend it like that's BYU, that's not the church. But the reality is that leaders, members of the first presidency and members of the quorum of the twelve as well as the president of BYU becomes an apostle later on. The board is made up of a few apostles and a member of the first presidency. The president of BYU at the time, it was Dallin H. Oaks, who becomes later an apostle and now a member of the first presidency. So we can't just blame BYU. 
We have to own that it is our leaders who direct and approve and okay and carry out and encourage these types of mechanisms and behaviors and policies and quote unquote doctrines. The curriculum is approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. We know how this works in the church. We cannot just blame curriculum writers. When bishops and stake presidents sexually abuse people, we say, oh my goodness, that's just that member of the church, and unfortunately, they just don't hold to the high standards of the church. But we also teach, side by side with that, that they are called by the spirit of discernment, by prophets, seers, and revelators. I served as a bishop. I had to be approved by the First Presidency. My stake president sent my name in to Salt Lake City, and I got a letter back when I was called. It was in a official little document that said, uh, uh, oh, Brother William J. Real, you have been officially called as a bishop, and it says some other little sentence, and then it's signed by the first presidency. They had to use the spirit of discernment, supposedly, to approve me. So we can't have it both ways on all of these things. We have to at some point be accountable and say, look, we at the top, we're responsible and accountable for false teachings being perpetuated. We are accountable and responsible for not using the spirit of discernment properly when we approve bishops and stake presidents. We are responsible and accountable when BYU Uh, unethically uses its police department. We are accountable and responsible when it does shock therapy to the genitals of people who are gay, uh, homosexual. We are responsible and accountable when any branch of our institution does something in which we sit on the board or we give explicit or implicit approval for the actions, behaviors, teachings, material, curriculum, uh, abuse, assault, uh, whatever it is. And every step of the way, prophets, seers, and revelators, and this is what pisses me off. These are men that for decades I believed were good men, and I believed them to always want to do the right thing. And now for the last 10 years, And specifically in the last five, I've grown to recognize that these are not good men, that they constantly deflect, dismiss, obfuscate, avoid accountability, lack transparency, um, behave dishonestly. And as I watch that take place, I've had to walk away. Yes, I was excommunicated. I stopped being an active member long before that. I gave up. I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't live a life that pretended these men were good and doing good things when everything I see about them is not good and is not upright and is not honest. I've told you before, RFM, that maybe, like the argument is that these are good men, maybe individually there are some good men among the 15. When those 15 men act collectively as an entity and have to be in agreement with each other to do anything and that sometimes parts of them do things without being in agreement, most of that tends to be very unhealthy and to lack the attributes that I find to be part of somebody who acts honestly and authentically. So there's that. Um, 
I'm, I live here in Southern Utah. So this Sisters, uh, Sisters in Zion video that was put out when Jonathan Streeter issued his satire apology. I live here in Southern Utah where the St. George Temple is being, uh, demo- parts of it demolished. The church cares more and spends more on its facilities than it cares for the well-being and healthiness of its members. The trauma it is imposing on members of color as it makes this mistake and refuses to recall these manuals and to fix the problem by leaders standing up in front of a microphone and being forthright and accountable about all the bullshit in Mormon theology that has been perpetuated for 200 years, specifically on this issue, speaks volumes. This church has no problem doing a three-year project, demolishing the St. George Temple, getting down to the foundation, fixing problems, and making this thing stronger going forward. But it does not care enough about the members of this church all across the globe to do the same thing with real issues that impact the well-being and healthiness of those members. So there's that. Um, I, I, I like Jonathan's point about Marvin Perkins, which is that this is a man who used to make excuses for the church, and he seems to be having his own existential crisis and seems to have changed his own mind. I, I would guess if we got Marvin Perkins in front of a microphone today, and we asked him what he thought about the Book of Mormon and its teachings on race, he would no longer perpetuate the uh, bad arguments about a black skin no longer, not really meaning a black skin. It's like Brian Hales when virgin doesn't mean virgin. We continually, as Mormons within apologetics, create loopholes in responses that require so much conjecture and, and require us to twist so much and, and to make so much extra space, as Terrell Givens says, for allowances, that when we just say like, okay, just stop the bullshit, let's just be honest, these answers are the least reasonable answers. Marvin Perkins seems to have arrived at, my old answer was bullshit. I was covering up and protecting a church because that's our job as Mormons is to protect Mormonism. Our job as Mormons is to put our white shirts on and our ties on and our dresses. And we're to go into church on Sunday and smile and pretend everything is good in our families and that the gospel is working. When I go next door and knock on my neighbor's door and I try to share the gospel with him, I pretend that everything is working. In reality, it's an entire mess. My marriage is a mess. My relationship with my children at times is a mess. My relationship with my righteousness and doing the right things inside the gospel is a mess. And my awareness of what things add up and what things don't are a mess. You said last week when you and I were together here in St. George, we were at dinner and somebody, you said somebody asked you how long you had been doubting and you thought about it and a light bulb went on for you and you said, you know what? I think I've always been doubting. And I said, you know what, RFM, the same thing. I think I've always been doubting and I've always been making excuses for it. I'm tired. I'm glad I'm out. I get to now look at these men and go like, ah, they're just old men who don't know how to do the right thing and they don't know how to be healthy and they don't know how to be honest and they don't know how to be authentic and they don't know how to be transparent and they don't know how to be accountable. And, and now I get to look at it as an outsider and go, not my circus, not my clowns. 
<laughs> oh, wow. Well, let me go to that part that you invited me to go to that we had talked about earlier on the phone today, Bill. Um, I think that the first thing that this demonstrates to me, or at least suggests strongly, the inclusion of this language from Joseph Fielding Smith in the new manual suggests how deeply entrenched the racism is in the LDS church. I mean, we're talking about the Book of Mormon and its racist passages, talking about the dark skin being a sign of the curse and the curse being the withdrawal of the Spirit of the Lord. It's certainly in there. But the very fact that the editors, the curriculum writers, the reviewers, the supervisors, and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency thought this was okay to include in a church official manual in the year 2020 indicates to me they don't see a problem with it. They are blind to it. They can't see that this is a statement from Joseph Fielding Smith that is racist, that is not acceptable in this time and place. It's not acceptable anymore. Let me interject one quick thing and let you go on, which we should expect when all 15 of the top leaders, for the most part, minus uh, Elder Gong, who, by the way, has lived in a white culture for much of his adult life, um, besides Elder Gong, and then you've got a few Hispanic leaders, that top leadership is made up of white privileged men. There's not a female in that group. There's not a person, uh, an African-American or a black person in that group. That group lacks the ability to be aware of its own blind spots, and it has self-created that. It has done it itself. And so we shouldn't expect um, these men to be aware of their blind spots because they have intentionally avoided confronting them. You're right, and they've intentionally avoided including people who might be able to give them additional perspectives to help correct their blind spots, which I think was what you're saying as well. Yeah, so they think this is okay. Now, at some point, somebody, some unknown person, after it's printed and published in hard copy, says, hey, I think there's a problem here, and then they change it. That's still somewhat of a mystery. We don't know exactly how or when that happened. All we know is that that happened prior to the end of November of last year. And the reason I say that is because I went and did a bunch of research on this issue. The earliest I can find this being talked about was at the end of November, of 2019 at a blog at the uh, website Wheat and Tares, and someone had mentioned this in their blog there, this problem in the manual that they had just met with their bishop, just been handed a copy at the end of November of the 2020 manual, thumbed through it, found this problematic portion that we've been discussing. And then she, the blog writer, went online and found even at that point that the online version was different and had been changed. So something happened prior to the Wheat and Tares article being published at the end of uh, November 2019. It was brought to the attention of church leaders or whoever, and they had already changed the online version. So that's a bit shrouded in mystery. What we do know is that it is in the published version, in the hard copy, so nobody saw any problem with it prior to that, in spite of all the review that we know went into it at the even highest levels of the church. And that was included, which indicates to me there's a huge blind spot here as to uh, racist attitudes and racist statements of past leaders. Now, having said that much, I want to go to this quote from Joseph Fielding Smith because I find it fascinating. If we do a little bit of textual analysis 
of it. I've already talked about how it was wrenched from its context, how it was edited in such a way as to obviously intentionally make it palatable, at least from the, the writer's point of view, the people who are doing the editing, the people who are putting this manual together, from their point of view, they are taking Joseph Fielding Smith with his statements from 1950s, which are not acceptable at all in today's climate. I'm not sure how widely acceptable they were back then, but certainly within a Mormon audience, they were acceptable and authoritative. And they have manipulated that article and culled out and carved out certain language from what he said with the specific intent, Bill, of trying to make Joseph Fielding Smith sound not like a huge racist that he was back in the 1950s and make him sound like what he's saying back in the 1950s is consonant with what the LDS church is teaching today. So it is apparent to me that what they're trying to do is they're trying to give this illusion that even back in the 1950s, Joseph Fielding Smith, who is still a name in the church, and people still know who he is, mainly because he became the 10th leader of the church in the early 1970s for a couple of years, and he was voluminous in his writings, and he was known to be the guy who wrote the answers to gospel questions, for crying out loud. This is what this article is from, right? He writes answers to gospel questions, which appears every month in the church magazine, which at the time was called the Improvement Era before it was changed to the Enzyme back in 1970 or 1971. Okay, so having said that much, they're trying to make it look like he is totally hip, totally with it, totally not a racist, even back in the 1950s, that there is this continuum of consistency between earlier presidents of the church and earlier prophets and the prophets today. That's the illusion they're trying to foist. And this is not the first time that I've seen this kind of pattern going on. And I think it's deeply deceptive. I think you'll probably agree with me on that. It was just a couple of months ago that I went through um, sort of a dramatic reading of a blog post that I had written back in December of 2013 in response to the then recent publication of the church's essay on race and the priesthood. And what I took them to task for especially was once again, a quote from Joseph Fielding Smith bill, because if you go back and listen to that, I'll go into more detail there. But what they did was they went into Joseph Fielding Smith's correspondence and took a quote entirely out of context where he says that there were no fence sitters in heaven, right? In order to try and make it look like he was teaching the same kind of thing that we're teaching today. Yeah, Joseph Fielding Smith was on board with this. And they completely avoid his published works in which he makes it clear over and over and over again that while he thinks there were no fence sitters in heaven, he still believed that the people who were born black in this life through African lineage committed some sin or transgression, otherwise unspecified, because he doesn't know what it is, but they had to do something wrong in the pre-mortal existence in that war in heaven. And this is a direct result of it, and that's why they can't hold the priesthood. They ignore all of that in order to try and give the false impression by quoting only one line from private correspondence of Joseph Fielding Smith to try and make it look like he's in harmony with what we're teaching today. And I see the exact same thing going on in this particular 2020 manual that we're discussing. Okay. So having said all of that, the church spokeswoman, and now more recently, um, Elder Gary Stevenson in front of the, uh, the NAACP this past Monday, ascribes this to an error. What the church spokes 
woman says is, uh, during the publication of the Come Follow Me manual for 2020, there was an error. Notice the passive voice, right? Mistakes were made. She doesn't identify who made the error, right? But there was an error that resulted in the printing of material that doesn't reflect the church's current views on the topic, etc. So it's trying to be pawned off and passed off as an error. This was simply a mistake, you see. Well, it occurs to me that that's really, really unlikely, given the fact of how this has to be written and then reviewed and then approved and then continue on the approval system and process all the way up to the leadership of the church, including apostles. It has to be approved all the way up. This is not an error, right? But it occurred to me that maybe it was possible to get additional proof on whether this was an error because it occurred to me that really the only way that you could reasonably say that this was an error is that what the curriculum writer did was he just grabbed some quote from Joseph Fielding Smith from some other manual from some other place where it had been used by the church with this edit already done to it okay in other words the way it appears in the 2020 manual the hard copy the Joseph Fielding Smith quote was this just already borrowed whole in its edited form and then included in the manual. Did it have the dark skin is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse with those ellipses in between? And what I did was I did a search using that quote. And what I found out was, I think, illuminating. What I found was that I could not locate any church manual that used this quote from Joseph Fielding Smith in the same manner in which it is edited in the 2020 manual. Let me go back and be clear about this. In the manual, it says the dark skin is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. There are ellipses between dark skin and is no longer. The original quote from the original article by Joseph Fielding Smith says, the dark skin of those who have come into the church is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. So I figure if we've got other manuals that say the dark skin, dot, 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 is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse, then at least there's a possibility that some conservative uh, curriculum writer just grabbed it wholesale, just included it, and just did a copy and paste. I could not find any manual using this quote, and it is used quite frequently in manuals of the church that included that same editing, those same ellipses. I found two, actually three different manuals that are current in the church and on the church website. Two of them I copied and pasted. And I'm not going to read them all, but I will tell you that one of them is the Book of Mormon Seminary Teacher's Manual from 2012, which is currently on the church website. It has the same quote from Joseph Fielding Smith. It has the reference to Answers to Gospel Questions, Volume 3, pages 122 through 23. That's the exact same as this. And there they have the entire line. It says, the dark skin of those who have come into the church is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. Then if we go to the Book of Mormon Student Manual, which is currently available on the church website under 2 Nephi 5, verses 20 through 25, we have the same quote from Answers to Gospel Questions. The dark skin of those who have come into the church is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. So what I am left to conclude from this, Bill, is that the people who wrote this manual, the 2020 manual, took this quote from Joseph Fielding Smith and intentionally did their own work on editing it in order to remove the line of those who have come into the church, insert ellipses there, in order to make it sound more universalistic in its message, that the dark skin is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse, and omitting 
the modifying phrase in the middle of those who have come into the church. What this tells me is that this was not an error by the curriculum writers. The curriculum writers or somebody involved in the production of the 2020 manual had to actually take this quote from Joseph Fielding Smith and do their own work to edit out that phrase to make it sound more contemporary in order to put it into the 2020 manual. This was no error. This was done with intent. This was no boating accident, as Hooper says in Jaws. This is something that was done intentionally, and it was done with the idea that having modified it, as we've described, and edited it, as I've shown, that now it would be acceptable to modern audiences. The problem was that they were focusing on the dark skin is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse, but in context, they kept in the previous line from Joseph Fielding Smith talking about the fact that the dark skin was placed upon the Lamanites so that they could be distinguished from the Nephites and to keep the two peoples from mixing. The dark skin was the sign of the curse. And the curse was the withdrawal of the spirit of the Lord. They kept that in there. They didn't see any problem with that. And that's what has raised this entire problem to my mind. Did that make sense to you, Bill? It makes perfect sense. When I go now to the online manual, which has the correction in it, it says, the Book of Mormon also states that the mark of dark skin came upon the Lamanites after the Nephites separated from them. The nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. The mark initially distinguished the Lamanites from the Nephites. Later, as both the Nephites and Lamanites each went through periods of wickedness. By the way, note that the church holds a position that completely disagrees with Marvin Perkins' original apologetic argument and disagrees with Brant Gardner, who still holds that apologetic argument. The church states that skin color did change and that it was a way to distinguish, at the very minimum, Lamanites from Nephites. It is not just an ambiguous term meant to mean uh, that no skin color actually changed, but that dark skin refers to wickedness and white skin refers to righteousness, and there was no actual literal skin color change. The church seems to be adamantly disagreeing with Marvin Perkins' old argument and Brant Gardner's. Now I'll continue. The mark initially distinguished the Lamanites from the Nephites. Later, as both the Nephites and Lamanites each went through periods of wickedness and righteousness, the mark became irrelevant. Now, when you say that, you say that at one point it was relevant, which means now you're back to still trying to hold some ground that it distinguished the difference between them and the difference that it points to is wickedness and righteousness that the church says itself in its corrected version of its online manual. In other words, they're still talking out of their ass and out both sides of their mouth. Um, the mark initially distinguished the Lamanites from the Nephites. Later, as both Nephites and Lamanites each went through periods of wickedness and righteousness, the mark became irre irrelevant as an indicator of the Lamanites standing before God. Again, pointing to that at one time it was relevant. Prophets affirm in our day that dark skin, now see, they try to separate Mormons in our day from Mormons in the Book of Mormon. Prophets affirm in our day that dark skin is not a sign of divine disfavor or cursing. The church embraces Nephi's teaching that the Lord denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. Uh, and then it goes on to share a quote from President Nelson. I, I simply want to note 
that the church is trying to hold all of the positions simultaneously so that every age group, every person who holds a certain ground, and every culture in various parts across the world, that all of these people can find what they want to find in these statements so that nobody gets disrupted. I want to note too, you point to how much we change the words of past leaders. How much do we really revere and trust the words of prophets, seers, and revelators when we are continually putting in ellipses in order to avoid the things they say? We cut off parts of what they say. We add in things that they didn't say to what they say. We're constantly editing their words and trying to make what they say more palatable as time goes on. So there's a note there as well. Um, When I look at uh, this whole mess, what I'm left with is that if I take the church at their word, while they give lip service that we can trust prophets, they are actually telling us you can't. You can't trust what these guys say. We have to change what they say. We have to cut out parts of what they say. And we have to come out with new statements that disavow what those leaders have said. We're told with lip service that we can trust the scripture, but by their own standard now, we can't trust Nephi and his descendants' interpretation of skin color. I also want to go back and say this. The church still holds that skin color changed, that magically one group's skin color changed and the other group who were their enemies, their skin color changed the same. Now that we are in the middle of disavowing what that skin change means, can somebody explain to me why in the hell the skin changed in the first place? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It becomes absurd that God took the Lamanites and snapped his fingers, did some kind of supernatural God magic, made their skin color change to dark skin, and now we are slowly walking away from the reason given in the scriptures for that skin color change, and now the change becomes, over time, more and more... Um, unnecessary and unconnected to anything. So now we can't trust the scriptures. By the church's own standard, we can't trust their canon. And inevitably, when you add those two together, you also can't trust the church itself. Excellent comments. Let me go ahead and go over what you've gone over and give you a couple of insights of my own on top of yours, if that's okay, Bill. This is in the online version now, and you just read this. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. We've gone quite a ways now and quite long, so I'll try and keep this brief. But it states, this is the new version. This is the new and improved version of the church's online 2020 manual. The Book of Mormon also states that a mark of dark skin came upon the Lamanites after the Nephites separated from them. You read that. It then states, the nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. So you see, there they're backing away from a literal translation or a literal interpretation of this. But what I find remarkable about this is that the church is now saying the nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood when actually the plain language of the Book of Mormon says exactly what the nature and appearance of this mark is. And guess what it is? It's dark skin. This is from 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 5. And interestingly, in the New and Improved Manual, here's what they say. This is how they lead off with this. This is a quote from 2 Nephi 5, 20 through 21. And once again, guess what they do, Bill? When they're quoting the Book of Mormon, they're using ellipses. 
And here's what they say. In Nephi's day, the curse of the Lamanites was that they were, quote, and here's the quote now from 2 Nephi, cut off from the Lord's presence, dot, 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 because of their iniquity. And they say 2 Nephi 5, 20 through 21. Well, you can go back and look at those ellipses yourself. But when it gets to verse 21, they said, and he, excuse me, the actual verse says, and he had caused the cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing, because of their iniquity. That's the quote. But the verse goes on. And here's what the verse says. The part they don't quote, Bill. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, that they had become like unto a flint. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. Now, it's pretty obvious what it's talking about, Bill. When the Book of Mormon says, the Lord caused the skin of blackness to come upon them, the skin of blackness is what the mark was. That's what it looked like. That's what it is described as being. It's not a mystery. It's not difficult to understand. And yet, in spite of the Book of Mormon's clarity on this point, the new and improved digital manual states, the nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. This is gaslighting at its finest. The Book of Mormon states the mark and appearance of the curse are a skin of blackness. And now the church is saying, well, we don't really know what it was. Yeah, and, and when I was 17 years old, and I entered the waters of baptism, and I joined Mormonism, I never thought I would see the day when the institutional church disavows portions of the Book of Mormon. And if you read between the lines right here, Nephi and his descendants are crystal clear about there was a curse, that curse took place in order for us to know who was righteous and who wasn't. And that curse was demonstrated by a change in skin color with the bad guys and us good guys, our skin stayed the same. And now you have the modern church saying those guys got it wrong. They essentially throwing portions of the Book of Mormon under the bus. I, I don't know where this goes in the next 50 to 100 years, but I am on the record and I stand by it that the church is intentionally moving towards a space where members will not be required in the least to see the Book of Mormon as a literal historical document, but will be free to walk away from its historicity and also be free to walk away from certain teachings in it. And we're watching it happen in real time and we're not even fully understanding or comprehending that it's happening. Right. I want to just mention another thing. Uh, I got about three concluding comments here. I'll try and keep them brief, Bill. One is back on this online version after the part that I just quoted. It says, later, as both the Nephites and Lamanites each went through periods of wickedness and righteousness, the mark, whatever it was, we don't really understand what it was, Bill. By the way, uh, I don't know why we have prophets on the earth today if they can't even tell us what the Book of Mormon means, but apparently that's beyond them. The mark became irrelevant as an indicator of the Lamanite standing before God. That's what the new manual says. What it doesn't say and what it doesn't refer to is 3 Nephi 2.15, which tells us why the mark became irrelevant as to the Lamanite standing before God. And the reason the mark became irrelevant, as I quoted earlier in this podcast, Bill, is because the righteous Lamanites became white. 
their skin color turned from a skin of blackness to white, fair, and delightsome. That's why it became irrelevant, but they're not going to say that in the manual. You actually have to read the Book of Mormon and somewhat deeply in order to find that out. So that's one comment. The second is, is that we've talked about how Joseph Fielding Smith, when read in his original writing, is obviously been modified and refined for current Mormon consumption, that originally his comments were much more racist than they have been edited to appear. The Book of Mormon itself has been quoted in this new manual on the digitized online version in order to use ellipses to avoid it stating about the skin of blackness that the Lord placed upon the Lamanites. And then I was drawn to what it was that the church spokeswoman had said, and she's really just quoting things that have been said by the church before. She says, church leaders today unequivocally condemn, condemn Bill, all racism, past and present, in any form. If we're to take that seriously, and I'm not positive that we're really supposed to, but if we take that seriously, church leaders today are condemning Joseph Fielding Smith and his statements regarding racism. And not only are they condemning him, they are condemning the Book of Mormon and its statements regarding racism, because it says church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. So not only are they condemning Joseph Fielding Smith, but they're condemning the Book of Mormon. They're also condemning Spencer W. Kimball, who I thought was uh, the most famous for making comments about the Lamanites, who was very involved in the missionary work to the Lamanites, especially the Navajo, and this idea that by putting them into Mormon homes and raising them with Mormon families and baptizing them into the Mormon church, their skin would become lighter. I want to read this quote from uh, Spencer W. Kimball. This is in General Conference, October of 1960. You cannot, repeat, cannot find this on the church website. This is what he has to say. The day of the Lamanites is nigh. Do you remember hearing about the day of the Lamanites, Phil? I don't know. You joined the church about 10 years after I did. I remember hearing about this quite frequently. Spencer Kimball was then the the president and prophet of the church when I joined the church in 1978. The day of the Lamanites is nigh. For years, they have been growing delightsome, and they are now becoming white and delightsome, as they were promised. Well, is Spencer Kimball using this figuratively, this idea of white and delightsome? No, apparently not. He goes on. In this picture, he's showing a picture now. In this picture of the 20 Lamanite missionaries, 15 of the 20 were as light as Anglos. Five were darker, but equally delightsome. The children in the home placement program in Utah are often lighter than their brothers and sisters in the Hogan's on the reservation. At one meeting, a father and mother and their 16-year-old daughter were present. The little member the little member, she's a Mormon, the little member girl, 16, sitting between the dark father and mother. And it was evident she was several shades lighter than her parents on the same reservation in the same Hogan, subject to the same sun and wind and weather. He goes on. I'm just quoting from Spencer Campbell, 1960 General Conference. There was the doctor in a Utah city who for two years had had an Indian boy in his home who stated that he was some shades lighter than the younger brother just coming into the program from the reservation. These young members of the church are changing to whiteness and delightsomeness. One white elder, and here's the end. Unfortunately, I've got to read this. One white elder jokingly said that he and his companion were donating blood regularly to the hospital 
in the hope that the process might be accelerated. Period. End of quote from Spencer Kimball, General Conference, October 1960. This is the kind of stuff that I heard when I joined the church, and I understood it and believed at the time that this was literally something that was happening and that the curse of the Lamanites was being removed and the manifestation of the curse being removed was that their skin was physically and actually becoming lighter in shape. Yeah, you have Spencer W. Kimball saying that. You had a quote earlier, I think it was Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, that you were reading from or Streeter was reading from. That no, it is. About, it's Joseph Fielding Smith. It's the same article. Oh, the same, yeah, it's the same thing. So That they're quoting you, from in the manual, but they don't quote that part, of course. Right. And so we use bits and pieces of our prophets when it is palatable in the modern day. And then we shed and cut out and dismiss parts that no longer are. And when you understand that process you come to realize that these are just ordinary men who are old, who grew up in different times, who hold on to views that often don't reflect how we see the world in modern times. And the church agrees that these men often become outdated. Their teachings become outdated, and which means that these men aren't trustable. As you pointed out, and as I've talked about earlier, the Book of Mormon is now uh, not exactly trustable. Um, Nephi got it wrong. At least parts of it, Nephi got wrong. At, at, at least parts of it, the Nephite descendants got it wrong. Um, and when you confront all of this and you start to grab a hold of your own intuition, grab hold of your own inner voice, you start to realize like, oh, I can actually do a better job uh, at figuring out how this world works than the teachings of these outdated leaders. And so the, we have this teaching that modern prophets trump uh, dead prophets. Uh, living prophets trump dead prophets. And the reality is at some point, all living prophets will be dead prophets. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So my final point is this, because this is a perfect storm, this fiasco that has occurred and it's being published in the Salt Lake Tribune and now the church failing to change the hard copy, but changing the digitized version what you can see happening is this. Now, we are in an age when more and more, especially younger members of the church, are becoming disaffected from the church because of the church's policy and stance regarding homosexuals, which we are assured comes directly from God. Well, first off, you know, the policy of exclusion came from God in November of 2015. Then its reversal uh, three and a half years later came from God as well because God has a tough time making up his mind on the subject. That was a red flag for a lot of people. But a lot of people are wondering, in the church, is the prophet really speaking for God, or is he just telling us how he personally feels and saying that this is what God feels too? Well, now we have a classic example that is occurring right in front of our eyes, except it's regarding the policy regarding dark skin being a curse. So up to this point, what the church has tried to do is be very generic about it, saying, you know, we disavow theories advanced in the past. Well, now we're not just talking about some people somewhere advancing some theories in the past. We're talking about Joseph Fielding Smith, who is advancing this theory, the scriptorian of the church, the 10th president of the church. Okay, we have got a name now associated with this, and he's a president of the church. And what they did was they have that in the hard copy. And they're disavowing him and renouncing him and his teachings in the digitized version. What we're seeing is exactly how it is that the church sends things down the memory hole. 
because they didn't do a good job of sending this down the memory hole. It actually would have been the church's benefit to have recalled and destroyed all the manuals instead of having the hard copies out there and the digitized copy online so they can be compared. Digitized copy, well, excuse me, hard copy. You've got Joseph Fielding Smith saying this. Digitized copy, Joseph Fielding Smith is gone. And now we're disavowing exactly the things that Joseph Fielding Smith said. And finally now, the question comes around and comes with full force because of this situation. If the church, as we can see, is now disavowing the teachings of Joseph Fielding Smith from 50 years ago on the subject of dark skin being a curse, why is it and on what basis should we think that the church's current teachings through Russell M. Nelson regarding the policy about gays and gay marriage, that those will not change in another 50 years? And if that is the case, why should we give any credence to what they're saying today about gays and maybe anything else, but specifically about gays, when we understand these things are subject to change and will probably change in the future because we know they've changed in the past? In other words, how is it that Russell M. Nelson can denounce through his church spokesman? How can he denounce today the racist teachings of Joseph Fielding Smith? And expect us to accept and abide by his homophobic teachings today. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it. I don't have a whole lot more to add other than just to recognize, like, when you sit back and you take all of this in collectively, it is a complete mess. Mormonism is trying to hold on to various facets that contradict each other. And it's struggling to be open and honest about those facets because it knows what is at risk. And I think we are living at a time when the membership of the church, there is a growing and collectively increasing awareness that these men are much closer to being ordinary than we thought and that our scriptures and these men are not as trustable as we imposed. And maybe, unfortunately, like Marvin Perkins may be realizing at this point, based on his quote, maybe they're not as good as we hoped they would be. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of us are arriving at that, too. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of people walk away from Mormonism, because they found that they just have a more authentic, honest, open, transparent life. And they get to espouse those attributes without any shame when they go out into the real world. Uh, and so a lot of people are doing what you and I have done, which is to no longer attend Mormonism, to still take interest in its story, its myth, um, its, its history, uh, and various facets of that, but to no longer connect ourselves directly to the pain of what it means to hide yourself and to protect an entity that refuses to hold those attributes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me in this discussion of this 2020 Come Follow Me manual fiasco, Bill Real. It's been a great time. And I know that uh, Jonathan Streeter had to depart sometime earlier, but thanks to him as well for joining and sharing his insights on this fascinating issue. Yeah, loved it. I enjoyed the conversation and I think the listeners will enjoy all of this too. I hope so. So until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon. And I'll add Jonathan Streeter and Bill Real and Alan Oaks signing off the air. There comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world. 
must come together as one There are people dying Oh, when it's time to lend a hand to life The greatest gift of all We can go on Pretending day by day That someone, somewhere will soon make a change We all a part of God's great big family And the truth You know love is all we need We are We are the children We are the ones who make it brighter than day So let's start giving There's a choice we're making We're saving our own lives It's true we make a better day So we all must lend a hand.